Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. There are things that we assume that maybe are not fair assumptions on what, what people know or what people believe. Uh, so, so this is going to be a fun series of going through just the basics of what we at the First Church of Christ uh, believe and teach. And, and today's a tough one. So bear, t- tough because this is, we're, we're talking just about the Bible. It's foundational. I mean, everything that we do in this church needs to be based on the Bible. So we start with what is the Bible. And I used to lecture on this in Southern Illinois at Christian conferences and at colleges. And it's a two to three hour lecture. So I'm glad that the song service was short today. (laughs) We're going to go through this fast. If I do have uh, uh, academic papers I've written on this subject. And if anybody wants, then they're not that dry. And if anybody wants to read that later if you want the paper that this is kind of based upon. Uh, hit me up after church. Likewise, uh, because we're going to go fast, and, and my, my being raised in New York now is going to kick in as I'm going to talk faster than I normally do. And if you, we record the sermons, so a reminder that you can play catch-up on that. But I've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of scripture today. Uh, I want to start, though, and I do want to back everything up with scripture. So there's a lot of scripture. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God communicates with us. He wants to communicate effectively with us. It's why Jesus came. It's why he left us his word. If there is a God, and I believe that there is, we want to know what he wants from us. We want to know what he has said to us. And so we open up with, what is the Bible? Uh, Lots of people misquote it. You can get on the internet. You can get in all sorts of debates about, with people about the Bible. People who have never read it who would love to tell you that you're not following it correctly. That's just what the internet is these days, it seems like. 
So this is our first sermon because this is based on what, what the Bible says. It's our foundation. God is the heart of our faith, absolutely. But this is how we find God. This is how he reveals himself. Be, if this, the advantage of being able to say that the Bible is our foundation is that we can be objective about this. And that's part of my contention, is that God gave us an objective truth. Because if it's all look into your heart and find God in your heart, then everybody's version of God is different, and there's no objectivity. And your God says something is wrong, and my God says that something is right, and really everybody just becomes kind of the king of their own little universe. But with the Bible as a foundation, we're all on the same page. And we can look to the Bible and say, this is truth, and if I'm not right with this book, then I'm wrong. And, we can, we can, and, and, and it's not then based on our feelings or what we want to be true. So today, since we want to know what God says to us, we look to the Bible. Uh, as a church that is Bible-based, let's talk about this foundation. As I said, we're going to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Drinking from the fire hose is the phrase. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, for some, this is going to be a little dry for a few people. It's going to be a little more academic than I normally do. And some of you are going to say this is the worst sermon of the year. But my hope is that for some people, there's going to be questions of why, why does Jason preach this? Why does the church teach this? There's questions I've always had about the Bible. Why, n- not every church is going to agree with what I preach in town. There are churches that don't believe some of the things I'm going to say. Why, why does this church do this and this church doesn't? For some people, this will answer those questions. Uh, and so uh, I, pray that, I pray that everybody gets something uh, out, out of this. In fact, Friday night, just as an example, Friday, uh, Friday night I was hanging out online with some friends of mine who live back in, in central Illinois where I used to live. And one of my buddies, Aaron, said, I would love for you to meet this, this friend of mine. I don't remember what her name was. She doesn't like Christians, and I'm not sure that she would get along with you, but I would love for you to meet her. And I said, I tend to get along pretty well with non-Christians. I, this book guides what I think is right and wrong. If she's not a Christian, she doesn't think that this book is right, right or wrong. I'm not going to hold her to that. But I will explain to her why, where I'm coming from and why I believe what I do. And no, if she doesn't believe that this book is true, how will she agree with me on, on things? But, but that, that, that undergirds all of my conversations with people. I believe this book is objectively true. Based on that belief, everything else falls into place. And so we start with this. What is the Bible? Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verse, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews, and we have no idea who that is, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. God speaks to us through his Son. But we find the Son through the Bible. So there are, there are, I've said this before and I've rattled them off, but today I'm going to talk about them. There are seven things that I believe that the Bible is, that this church believes that the Bible is. Okay? The first thing is inerrant. And inerrant means without errors, that the Bible does not have mistakes. There are no mistakes in the Bible. If it, see, if, if it tells us that Egypt and Assyria went to war... That's a true historical event. It means that that took place. Um, so, and we've got examples where people said, oh, the Bible's wrong. And then for ages, for, for centuries, over a thousand years, people said there were no Hittites. 
We can't find any archaeological evidence. The Bible talks about the Hittites all the time. We've never found any proof that they existed. The Bible made that up. Till we started looking in the right place. And then just found staggering amounts of archaeological evidence. And everybody who said there are no Hittites, that's just a made-up Bible story, had to then say, okay, that Bible was right again. That absolutely is the case. Um, they, really, they really did exist. Um, there is a King Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. There's no historical record of a King Belshazzar. In fact, let's turn to Daniel chapter 5, verse 13, and read about King Belshazzar, who doesn't exist in history. Daniel chapter 5, verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't even explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." And then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. The clue is actually in the passage. We finally figured out there was a king named Nabonidus, and he got really sick. He got really sick, and he retired from court, and he moved to his country home, and he left the kingdom to be run by his son, who couldn't make Daniel second in the kingdom because Belshazzar was second in the kingdom, but he could make him third. And so the clue was always there all along for thousands of years. And then finally, with archaeology, we figured out what was going on. Yeah, there was no King Belshazzar. There was a Prince Belshazzar. There was a king, but, but, but the Bible calls him king. It's not misleading. He was the guy leading the kingdom. He was the guy living in the royal palace. As far as the citizens were concerned, he was the king. Because the king was completely taken off. Historically, he was never crowned king. He was just prince, but he was the ruling monarch of the kingdom. And so we say that to say sometimes people point out mistakes, but sometimes we've got to figure out what's going on, learn to read it, learn, recognize how the Bible is written. Let's remember a couple of things. Number one, this book is about God. It is not meant to be a history textbook. It's not meant to give us a perfect uh, uh, laid out uh, uh, history the way that your textbooks in school do. The point of this book is to show us God's redemptive plan, not a chronological history. Another example, Matthew chapter 1, verse 8. Look at this genealogy of Matthew. These, all these genealogies, we just blow through them. Matthew chapter 1, verse 8. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. And here's our problem. Jehoram is not the father of Uzziah. He's great-grandfather. We skipped three generations. Maybe great-great-grandfather. Um, Matthew goes out of his way to create a genealogy that specifically has 42 people in it. And the number 42 has significance in the book of Daniel, representing God's perfect timing. And Matthew, jumping on that number 42, may have been trying to say Jesus came at the right, perfect time. Now, we see this in history. We see this in other nations, Egypt and Babylon, that they would skip generations. They would say, this guy is the son of this guy, 
and they skip generations. And so knowing that we know that, and I, Matthew quotes the Old Testament so much, he's not trying to pull one over on us. So then we have to ask, is that, a, is that a technique that we can't catch in other places in the Bible? We get Boaz's genealogy in the book of Ruth, and, he tra- and we get it traced back to the time of, of the Exodus. We start to do the math and say, man, Boaz's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, they all had kids at the age of 90, or, or we skipped a few generations. And that's okay. That's the way that they wrote and the genealogies of Matthew and Jesus don't line up. Did Matthew, does Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, have two dads? Or is there something going on with a stepdad? Or, or something? We, we, don't, we don't know, but I don't think the Bible's trying to lie to us. But it's giving us, it's giving us information that we have to learn how to read. That doesn't mean it's inaccurate. They write differently back then than we do today. Um, the point is, this is about God's salvation plan. It doesn't make mistakes. We just have to learn how to read it sometimes. Um, it's sometimes poetic language is involved, sometimes hyperbole, uh, sometimes figures of speech. We take this into account as we need to. The Bible is inerrant. It has no mistakes. Still have to be smart enough to read it, but it has no mistakes. The Bible is sufficient. It has all that we need to be a Christian. Second Timothy chapter 3 is probably, the, if, if there's a key verse to this text... To this sermon. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to start with verse 12. Paul says to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is God-breathed, it is useful, it's it's what we need. And it's all that we need. This book is sufficient. We do not need to add other books. Now, do I like commentaries? I love, I love commentaries. They can help us understand this. Um, I love Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I love the works of Francis Schaeffer. I love other Christian writers, but they're not Scripture. This is Scripture. It's all that I need. It's the only book that I need. I don't need any creeds. That I, Creeds are, are things that churches say, we believe this. and Creeds are fine, but they're not Scripture. Um, I went to a church... We had a girl that wanted to join a Nazarene church. I went to a Nazarene church for a while back in Urbana. It was the only thing in walking distance, and my car broke down. Um, in this church, there was a girl that wanted to join the church, and the Nazarene handbook, maybe they've changed it, but at the time, you couldn't be a smoker and be a member of the Nazarenes. She was a great woman. She was godly. Um, she was wonderful. Her name was Tammy. She was, she was a delight to be around. She encouraged everybody. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, she was there when the doors were open. She asked to join the church, and the church told her, you can't. Not till you quit smoking. Now, that's not in the Bible. And I talked to the preacher about it. I said, she's a wonderful woman. Why don't you want her to be a member? He said, I want her to be a member. But as a Nazarene preacher, I agreed to follow the Nazarene manual. And I said, I'm glad I'm not a Nazarene. <laughs> I, I like them. But I'm not following a Nazarene manual. Um, it's a, I love the, let me be clear. I love the Nazarenes. They're good people. But I follow the Bible only. 
And in this church, we follow the Bible only. There are no manuals. There are no creeds. Um, there is a danger when other do- uh, with other documents. Uh, and, and frankly, that... I don't want to sound like I'm picking on, on the Nazareth, because all the denominations have this. There is a danger when those other documents start to supplant the Bible. You start to get into, uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to pull punches on this one, you start to get into, the, into the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you start to get into Mormons, you start to get into these groups that we call them cults for a reason, because the Bible starts to become secondary. What we're saying is that if it's in the Bible, we need it. And if it's not in the Bible, it may be good, but it's an option. And opinions are okay, and it may be, and and it's an opinion, and opinions are okay. There's nothing wrong. Do I think that smoking is bad for you? Yes, we know that. Do I think that the Nazarene church should encourage people not to smoke? Yes, I'm fine with that. I just wouldn't make it a rule of fellowship. Opinions are okay, traditions are okay, but they don't save us. This book saves us, and and it is sufficient. It gives us what we need to be saved. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is authoritative. It has the right to tell us what to do, how to live, and we just read that as well in 2 Timothy, that the Bible is authoritative. Um, if it is God-breathed, if it is God-breathed, then it is, uh, it, it is best that we pay attention to it, right? Two questions. Was it reliable? What, you know, the, the questions that I always ask. Number one, when it was written, was it reliable? Because some people say, I don't trust the Bible. And there are two different reasons that people will say this. I always hear, well, it's been mistranslated through the years and nobody knows what it originally said. And we're going to hit that in the second half of the sermon. And the other question, so some people say, it was, originally it was a good book. Originally, when, when it was written, it was a good book, but it isn't today. It's been, it's been messed up through, through 2,000 years. But other people will say it wasn't good to begin with. And those are two different things. So we ask the question... Um, uh, it, was it what Second Timothy says? It was God inspired, so either it was or it wasn't. If Second Timothy is correct, it was God inspired. It was it was perfect. If it was God inspired, it was what we needed. Um, God left it for us, and He means it for for us to take it seriously. God is the Lord of the universe. That's an objective fact. He may not be your Lord, <laughs> but He is Lord. Of the universe, and the only question then is, how do I, if this book is true, how do I get right with the Lord of the universe? It, this book is authoritative. If God inspired it, it has the right to tell me how to live. Now, I also think that the Bible is infallible, which is different than inerrant. Inerrant, it has no mistakes. Infallible, of course, means it won't fail us. Acts chapter seventeen, verse eleven. Acts chapter 17, verse 11 is this wonderful short verse that gets quoted a lot. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. These guys were fact-checking Paul, absolutely, (laughs) with Scripture, because they recognized that Scripture was the authority even more than Paul, who was at this point in time somewhat untested. They weren't tight. You know, we got to make sure, we're going to test, is if Paul, what Paul's saying lines up with Scripture, then we can trust what Paul is saying. But we're going to fact check him. We're going to check with what he's saying. And the Bible commends them. 
there are Berean Christian churches and Berean churches of Christ all over the country because we look at that and say, that's a good people. Those are people worth emulating. Um, Scripture guided them. It's not just that Scripture is accurate about history. Again, when we know how to read it, but it's also accurate about God himself, which is not history. That's a spiritual truth that no amount of history books can tell us about. Uh, what is here is the hidden, the, what the Bible tells us about the supernatural, the hidden side, the spiritual side of our world. What we're saying is that the Bible is true. What it tells us about angels and demons is true. What it tells us about right and wrong is true. And to be clear, there are churches in town, there are preachers in town who have told me we don't believe that. There are, there are preachers in town who have said, we don't believe that the Bible is inerrant. It has mistakes in it. We don't believe that the Bible is infallible. Uh, it's not always correct on what it tells us about right and wrong. How can you build a church? How can you have a foundation? If, you can't, if this book doesn't tell us what is right and wrong, who does? We all get to pick, right? And then we all get to pick whatever we want to, and then the entire world is gray. There's no black and white. You, know, what, you, you do whatever you want to do because there is no foundation. Um, what the Bible tells us about one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We believe that this is true. Um, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, and I'll be the first to say that. A guy named Tertullian, who didn't have good theology, coined that term. But he was accurate when he, what he described in here was how God manifests himself to his people. Um, the Bible doesn't mislead us. It tells us how to get right with God. It doesn't fail us, and we can trust it. Because if we can't, we're in a mess <laughs> without any kind of foundation. The Bible is divinely inspired. Again, we read that in 2 Timothy. God breathed, divinely inspired. Um, that word inspire literally means in the spirit. The Hebrew word for breath, breathed, is the same as the Hebrew word for spirit. It's the same word. And so this is why when we talk about inspiration, we talk about the spirit, what we literally mean is the spirit coming into it. If you are inspired, the spirit has moved you. We, we, we mean that. Um, there's a reason that words like respiration, which have the same root as inspiration, respiration has to do with breath. Inspiration has to do with the spirit, but it's the same word. There's a difference, though, between authored and inspired. We know that the Bible is inspired. The Bible tells us the Bible is inspired. Um, it's different than authored. So, for example, if there's an accident out here on the corner of, is this part Maine or Worth out here? This, this is, is this Worth or Reed? Well, it then turns into Reed, right? So, at the, at the corner where Reed turns into Worth, which is so confusing already, and you've got then that, that, that street that goes down between the hospital and its parking lot. If there is an accident there, and I'm standing here, and one of you is standing here, and one is standing here, and one of you is standing, and the cops show up and say, what happened? Are our stories going to be identical? No. We were standing at different angles. We saw different parts of it. And we had seconds to maybe catch some of this stuff. And, and we might have missed some, or we might have been looking in the wrong direction, or we might just... Perception is one of those things where, where, where how you see something and how I see something is ever so slightly different. We're talking about a true event. But the way that you describe it to the police and the way that I describe it to the police are going to be a little bit different. So we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Matthew and John knew Jesus. They were disciples. Mark 
We get the indication that he met Jesus near the end of Jesus' ministry, maybe. Maybe kind of hung around at the end, was one of the disciples, but not was one of the 12 apostles. Luke was a researcher who came later and interviewed a whole bunch of people and wrote down a very accurate account as much as he could based on eyewitness testimony. But we have these four different Gospels that are looking at a real series of events, the life of Jesus Christ, real series of events, but they're going to look at it from different angles, right? And so they're going to describe things a little differently. Um, and, and in Luke's case especially, showing up and interviewing people, um, what if people who tell him, what if somebody says, well, this event took place and then this event took place, but it was years earlier. I get events out of order all the time. And that doesn't mean that those weren't real events, but I might not put them in the right order. So even little things like, well, Matthew says this happened then this, but Luke says this, and it doesn't mean it's inaccurate. The order of events doesn't matter. The fact that they took place does. Um, you know, it, the accident on our, on our proverbial corner of, of, of Reed and Worth is a real event. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a factual event. There's reality to it. But we filter reality through our own perception. We believe that the Holy Spirit, God through the Holy Spirit, inspired the writers, but they got to use their own style of writing. They, got, they, they used their own perception of events uh, to write down truth, but they're not robots. God didn't move their hand across the page and get his word. They put it in their own words. And we read that in 2 Timothy, that it's God-inspired, not God-authored. The Bible comes from God. It's about God. One of the things I think that stands out, the heroes of the Bible are terrible heroes. Abraham, David, um, Peter. These are people that are screw-ups. And if I were writing a book, I would make those guys perfect and say, you too should be perfect like these guys. But that's not how God chose to have his book written. God chose to show us the humanity and the failures of these people, which in the long run is pretty neat, because it means when I mess up, I can go to Scripture and say, well, I didn't mess up as bad as David, and God still loved him. So maybe God still loved but, but David got But David was a man after God's own heart. He had catastrophic failure, catastrophic failures, but he had catastrophic successes of faith. And I can look to David and say, I didn't mess up that bad, but I want to follow him as good as David did when he got it right. And so I'm encouraged by that. The hero of the Bible is not the people. It is God. God is the one who we're reading about, not the people that followed him. The Bible is universal. It's a book for everybody. Christianity is for everybody. There's, Jesus says in, in, in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, you know, there are a lot of religions out there. Many of them don't care if you convert. They're doing their own thing. You do your thing. They don't care. If you join their religion, you join their religion. If you don't join their religion, they, they don't care. They're, they're, they're private, maybe selfish. Maybe that's not the way to look at it. But we share the good news. The Greek word for Sharing good news is a Greek word that when transliterated into English, it's the word evangelism. So are we evangelical? Yeah, if you tell people about Jesus, you are. I don't care whether you're Catholic or Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist. If you tell people that you should follow Jesus because he saves us, that's evangelism. 
And Christianity absolutely, by its nature, has to be evangelical because that's how Matthew, the book of Matthew ends. Um, that's Jesus died for everybody. We opened up with that in, in John chapter 1. Jesus came to save everybody, not just a few people. John chapter 3. Heavens, these are the most known verses in Scripture, right? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, not just a few people, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And again, in 1 John chapter 2. Chapter, yeah, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. By its nature. You know, I... I had a radio show back in, back in Urbana, Illinois, ages ago, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, the station manager said to me one day, Mick, great guy, said to me, I get that you think this is true. He said, I totally get that, and I don't have a problem. But I don't understand why you want to make everybody else believe with you the same thing. And I said, because I understand that this book is objectively true. And that this book objectively states that the only way to get right with God is through Jesus. And that's something God wants. It'd be different if God didn't want people to follow him. But what he wants is for everybody to be restored from brokenness and sin and rescued and redeemed to him. And since he wants people to follow him, it's my job to tell people about him. They may not. They may not most people won't agree with me. It's just my word against theirs. But I can at least try. Um, this book applies to the mighty and to the downtrodden, to every human being, to men and women, white, black, every other pigmentation on earth. Um, no exceptions. This book is for every single human. Every human being is called to follow this book. This is for everyone. And this book is unique. It's not like any other book. Um, all these things we've mentioned... Inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, infallible, divinely inspired, universal. This is the only book that, that can be described by those words. Um, uh, which, which means, no, we don't think the Quran is truth. No, we don't think the Bhagavad Gita is true. No, we don't think that the Book of Mormon is true. Uh, other, other so-called holy books. When people follow the Bible, the world gets better. Uh, we, we, we see this. Um, Again, call a spade a spade. When people follow the example set out in the Quran, Muhammad was a conqueror who conquered everybody around him. Jesus was the Prince of Peace who told people to turn the other cheek. We see what happens in our world when people follow extremist conquesting religions, and not just Islam. Christians have got it wrong for centuries. Let me be very clear. People are going to bring up the crusade. Yeah, when Christians don't follow the Bible, they do a terrible job of describing Christ, and, they do it, and, and, and we condemn it when Christianity gets it wrong. But when we get it right, the world becomes a better place. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. 
Peter says, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter recognized, Peter who knew Jesus, who traveled with Jesus, recognized Paul wasn't just some writer. In Paul's own lifetime, Peter said, this guy's writing scripture. This is, is the words, these are the words of God. Incidentally, if you've got your outline, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, infallible, divinely inspired, universal, and unique. Um, how can I rattle those all? That, that spells out, I said to you, <laughs> to use. Um, and, and that's what I, and God wants to communicate with us. And the Bible is what he says to us. And so that's what I believe, that's what this church teaches, that the Bible is. It's, it's those seven things. Now, I said that we were going to get to uh, uh, some issues. We'll get through the next part quicker. We're going to get to, is the Bible trustworthy? Let me ask, let's, let's hit the question, where did it come from? Okay, So, big story made super simple. In the, the Old Testament, came. there was a council called Jomnia. Um, they got together. Uh, the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. Um, Written, parts were written by supposedly Moses, 1400 B.C. Parts were written by King David, 1000 B.C. Parts were written by Ezra, you know, and, and, and writers in, in 500 B.C. Uh, prophets. Uh, we agree with the Council of Jamnia. Uh, Jesus and the disciples quote most of the books of the Old Testament. The New Testament quotes almost every book of the Old Testament. So when the Council of Jamnia said these are the books that are Scripture, they seem to be the books that Jesus and his disciples were using. Uh, for scripture. Uh, you've, uh, there's a long tradition uh, of the Hebrew people translating the Bible into Greek. We call it the Septuagint. Um, you've heard maybe of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were an amazing thing because when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were these ancient manuscripts. The Jewish people said, um, people say, oh, you can't trust the translation techniques. It's been changed through thousands of years. Found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate Christ, they're the same thing. They haven't changed. And that's pretty amazing because typically manuscripts do change. Copies of copies of copies of Some intentional changes, some accidental changes. The Jewish people said, we didn't make changes. And everybody said, ah, yeah, you absolutely did. They said, no, we, we have this tradition that we believe that if we get one letter wrong, God's going to come back and end the earth. And so they took it very seriously. Um, uh, the, old, the fact that the Old Testament of thousands of years ago matches what we have today is, is I would use the words miraculous. I think God was a part of that. Um, uh, what God takes care of his people, and he made sure that we have the right books. Now, we go to the New Testament, and we say, where did we get the New Testament? I said we were going to go through this quick. New Testament, there was this guy named Alexander the Great. Pretty cool if your name is the Great. Alexander... Uh, tried to conquer planet Earth uh, at a very young age, 20s and 30s. Uh, one of the things that he did was he made everybody learn Greek. Okay. A couple hundred years later, we have Jesus. Um, well, a couple, Alexander dies young. He's an alcoholic. His empire was taken over by the Romans, and the Romans were famous for roads, and we've mentioned that before, and they connected the world together. So at the time that Jesus was born, everybody spoke Greek, 
which is very convenient. And there were safe roads to get all over the world. It's the perfect time to come. At, at, at exactly the right time, Jesus was born. The whole world was connected by one language and by a series of roads. Um, the books of the New Testament that we have, the 27 books, consistently quoted by, the, by early Christians, um, Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Papias, they were written in Greek. First Peter being an exception, but they were all written in that Greek, and that's just because we don't have the oldest manuscripts of, of First Peter. They were written in uh, in Greek. Uh, it the, by the year three sixty seven, there was no people talk about. Oh, there was this council that they decided when to kick certain books out, and when it's a conspiracy of 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 leaving some books out and putting some in. Nah, the earliest list of the twenty seven books of the New Testament we have was that a guy named an Egyptian named Athanasius wrote an Easter letter. Uh, in 367, and mentions, doesn't say these, you know, I'm telling you what the books are. He, his, he said, you guys know what the books are. And these are the 27 books that we all acknowledge are, are, are the books of the New Testament. Um, it wasn't a Council of Nicaea thing that Da Vinci Code talks about and things like that. Um, we have ancient manuscripts like Codex of Frami Rescriptus that has the 27 books of the New Testament in it, these ancient manuscripts. Um, Pope Damasus in 382 talks about the 27 books of the New Testament. And it, it was an established thing. Um, what, there are things that kind of seem to be the criteria. Why did the churches accept these? The language that they were written in, widespread distribution. Is it consistent with the teachings of the church and with Jesus? Um, can, you know, again, there's always that exception like Hebrews, but can we track down who the author of a book was or do we have a good idea on who the author of a book was? And the authors being Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, Jude. Um, these, and these were all people that knew Jesus. Or, in the case of Luke, interviewed people. Um, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. John tells us, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Life appeared and we've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Um, uh, uh, So we've seen it. These books were written within the lifetime of the Apostles. Um, uh, we have ancient manuscripts that go back to 200 AD, some of them even earlier. Um, so here's my point. We can put our faith in this book. We can put our faith in how it got here because there were staggering amounts of pieces, scholars all over the world and, 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 and the disciples and the apostles, and, and it all comes together in amazing ways to give us a book that is really reliable. Um, it's not a random assortment of books picked by a conspiracy of a couple old men uh, behind locked doors. God inspired his church to make sure that we got the right books. So, that's where it comes from. And I want to end with the, the question, is this book reliable? And that's a question, you know, has it, been, has it been changed through the years? Well, we can look at those old manuscripts. Um, we've got all these ancient manuscripts that we can look at, look at. It's not the telephone game. We're not translating a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. We have these ancient manuscripts. And every time a new translation comes out, because English is slowly changing. 
Every time new translations come out, they don't look at an older translation. They go back to the Greek manuscripts. They go back to the Hebrew manuscripts, and they examine it. And, 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 and scholarship, how do we best translate this? Um, now, ancient writers. Socrates, we have nothing that he wrote. We've heard of him. We don't have anything that Socrates ever wrote. Plato, we have seven ancient manuscripts. Uh, Julius Caesar, we have ten. The historian Tacitus, we have twenty. Pliny, we have seven again. Herodotus, we have eight ancient manuscripts. The New Testament, we have 24,000. By that definition of what is an ancient manuscript. 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, 9,000 other translations, um, quoted in other writers over 86,000 times. Um, The difference between the old, when Tacitus and Suetonius wrote, and the oldest manuscript of them that we have, 850 years. Between Herodotus and Thucydides, when they wrote, and our oldest manuscript, 900 years. Between when they lived and our oldest manuscript. Um, Polybius and Plutarch, 950 years. Josephus, 1,000. Our oldest manuscript of Josephus is 1,000 years after he lived. Um, New Testament, 200 years. Drastically different. They are, in that sense, the most reliable manuscripts of ancient manuscripts that we have. There's so many copies, and they're so ancient. They're so close to the time of their writing. As for any difference, you know, are these ancient manuscripts a little bit different from each other? Well, less so than copies of Pliny or Thucydides. Um, uh, In a day of handwriting with no journalistic integrity, um, the accuracy of the Bible exceeds the accuracy of other man, ancient manuscripts when they wrote and copied from it. Um, uh, and check these with Achmemic manuscripts in Egypt as examples. Um, second, I, I mentioned that the Jews, in fact, I mentioned that the Jews felt the world would end. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, the Greek word for that smallest letter is iota, which is their letter I. In Hebrew, that's a yod, and it just looks like an apostrophe. As for the least stroke of a pen, the word there is a horn. Hebrew letters had li- Hebrew letters look a lot alike. Hebrew is a tough language to study. The the B and the the B and the uh, K, the B and the K look a lot alike. The R and the D look a lot alike. It's just a little horn on the end of the D that you can tell the D from the R. Little horn on the bottom of the B makes the B look different from the K. And the Jewish people believe if you skip that, you turn a B into an R, world's going to end. And Jesus references that those little mistakes aren't going to happen. Jesus says that we can trust Scripture. Um, any problem with content, language, authorship, age, distribution. People that say that it's not reliable, but we can rely on these books. And for a final scripture, I want to look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul tells the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Anathema is the word. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, 
let him be eternally condemned. Um, were there books that didn't make it into the Bible? Yeah, they weren't close calls. I've read some of those books. They don't match the gospel. You know, books about Jesus killing childhood friends and things like that. Garbage. Science fiction. Um, here's my conclusion. The Bible is the most accurate and attested book in history. I stand by that. And I've got the research, and if you want it, I'll give it to you. Um, it's, is it the Word of God? Now, so, so, historically, it's accurate. Is it the Word of God? Is there a God? Well, I can't make that decision for you. That's what you have to decide. But I think the evidence adds up greater that there is a God and that the Bible is His Word than not. Can I prove it 100%? I can't. But I think that the evidence that the Bible is the Word of God is greater than the evidence that it isn't. Is it reliable? I think it's the most reliable book you will ever find, and you can put your faith in it. And this is the foundation of our faith. And we'll build on this in future weeks. Thank you for sticking with me for this. I know this was a drinking from the fire hose sermon. Our hymn of invitation today is hymn number 223. I I do want to close with with a a brief story that I heard. There was a guy back in England couple hundred years ago debating whether or not with an atheist whether or not the bible was truth and the atheist took a few days to talk about science facts and irreliability of ancient manuscripts and all various other things that he thought proved his point and this country preacher who had very little in the way of education um, at the you know when it was his turn for the debate he was very short he just came up on on the debate stage with like 10 other men and he said all of these guys were alcoholics who beat their wives until they found jesus christ this book is true And I think that that is the best truth. The truth of the matter is, people who follow this book become better. And they make the world a better place. And at the end of the day, it's not about academia. It's about changed lives. People who follow this book, they still get sick. I don't want to say that everything gets perfect. But their world goes better when when they devote their lives to this book. This book changes lives. People draw closer to God. And that's the best evidence. If you haven't given your life to Christ... Let's talk after church. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.